Welcome to Warbird Radio Down Under. I'm your host, Dave Homewood, and uh, I'm with my co-host, Grant McKeeran. Hi, Grant. Hey, how you going, Dave? Good, good. Uh, today on the show, we've got Matt Henderson. How are you going, Matt? Oh, I'm well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. And, uh, of course, um, Matt, you are probably famous these days, associated with uh, Token Wall. Is it Token Wall or is it Tecum Wall? Uh, no, it's Token Wall, unless you're a GPS, in which case then it's Tecum Wall. <laughs> yeah. uh, or, or me saying it for the first time uh, uh, when I was starting playing Crazy Down Under, much to Steve Vish's delight. <laughs> you know, the, uh, every GPS that I know calls it Tecumwall, um in the same way that it calls Geraldry Geralderry. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, right. Okay. And, well, I mean, yeah. it's it's one of those foreign languages to me, so, you know, it's... <laughs> what, English. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, row. Touche. <laughs> nice. <laughs> most of us just call it Toke. We're going up to Toke. It is, yeah. Toke, Denny. Any, any of those shortened names, it um, keeps it simple. Okay, well, Matt is from the Toke Aviation Museum. Um, can you tell me, uh, we caught up in 2015 and you were living at, well, had your aircraft at uh, Kyneton at that stage. Um, uh, how long have you been at, at Toke? Um, so we moved to Toke Mall at the end of 2017. So, right. um, yeah, I think the... I think the last time we spoke, I still had the CT4. Um, right. Yes. And, yeah, you took me for a ride. Yeah. And, um, yeah, uh, about that same time, uh, the uh, council up here, uh, which is the Berrigan Shire, uh, had released uh, some land on the airport to sort of do an air park thing like it tomorrow and that. And um, we bought one of the blocks um, just opportunistically, not thinking about what we'd do with it in the future, but um, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And yeah. Uh, uh, so we bought the land and I didn't really think about it for a little while, um, thinking that you know maybe one day when we retire we'll move up here. And then, um, yeah, not too long later, um, we sort of made the decision to uh, sort of escape the world and, and pack up and, and move up here. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we sold up everything at Kyneton. Um, Kaz and I were both working remotely at the time, so it didn't really matter where we were. And right. um, yeah, we packed up stumps and moved up here and... Um, uh, with no plans other than to just live up here and you know build a hangar and a house and sort of enjoy the the life up here. Uh, yeah. So how did that lead into you ended up um, creating the museum there? Um, the museum story was kind of funny. It was um, uh, it kind of almost started as a joke uh, at the Aero Club one night uh, with all the old boys sitting around drinking. Um, some of them not so old, but you know that's how the story goes. Yeah. And um, uh, when we first moved here, we sort of had a bit of a an idea about the history here. Um, you know, through some of the events that we'd run here with the Antiguas and uh, the Air Force pilgrimage back in 2011. Uh, prior to that, I'd never even heard of Tokemol or, or knew why it was um, significant or relevant to anything. And when we when we moved here, I sort of started getting myself buried in in the history here because I, I was sort of surprised and amazed at by it all. Um, by you know how much went on here and how little I knew of it or other people seemed to know about it. Um, and there was a museum type thing that existed prior to us creating this. Um, anyone that's sort of come to Tokemol over the years and um, had been a part of a flying activity would have heard a, an old fellow by the name of Bob Brown give a talk. Um, and he had a collection of photos up in that kind of got moved from pillar to post around town and it never really had a, a home. And... Um, 
yeah, one night, you know, we were sitting around at the Aero Club having a few beers and, um, you know, I was sort of lamenting, you know, not having a proper museum here and, you know, someone sort of just sitting, well, someone should do something about, you know, a proper museum here and I just said, oh, okay, well, I'll do it. <coughs> um, <laughs> which, is, which is generally how I've dobbed myself into everything that I've done in my life, um, <laughs> which is to say you'll do it and then figure it out later on. Um, but in, in my mind, I'd sort of, you know, with my involvement that I'd had with the uh, the Air Force Museum at Point Cook and the time that I'd spent at Tamora over the years, uh, as well as obviously travelling around the countryside and the world looking at aviation museums, I kind of had this idea of, you know, what I thought was possible um, uh, at a small scale. And uh, so I sort of thumbed a bit of a plan together and a bit of a design and a layout and, um, you know, came up with some ideas about, you know, how we might go about doing it. And... Um, and I knew that the council here was also trying to do something like they wanted something here, but they just didn't really know what to do um, or how to go about doing it. So they did what all councils do, which is to go and pay a consultant to tell them what to do. Um, and uh, all of that was kind of happening in parallel. So the, the council had paid a consultant to write a report on, you know, what, what council could do with the history here and what that might look like. Um, and at the same time, I was sort of putting together a business plan and design and, you know, some concepts about what might be possible. And uh, had a meeting with the CEO of the council at the time and just went and had a coffee and, you know, sort of talked through my business plan and the ideas that I had for for what we wanted to do, mostly because I wanted to ask for some land to do it on at the airport. And um, he sort of pulls out a a draft report that he had from his consultants and flicked to the last page and said, that's funny, these consultants said, you know, that's basically what we should do, Um, which is kind of like a micro museum or whatever they call them. Um, So obviously, you know, limited funding but you know able to, to start with something and, and sort of grow from there and um so yeah between you know what the consultants had put together and what i'd put together um you know that was all sort of bundled together and went to a council meeting and, and i went to the council meeting and had a bit of a talk about what we wanted to do and what we're after and that went from you know us um so kaz and myself want you know quite happy to you know build it and do it all ourselves um and pay for it because uh, i thought it was a, a viable op- you know, business venture um, to the council wanting to partner with us and, and help fund it all, which I was kind of happy with. Um, so, yeah, so it ended up as a partnership between ourselves and the council. Um, they managed to secure some federal government funding to, to help build the structure, um, which was done to my design. And then um, yeah, Kaz and I uh, fitted it out and um, sort of it, in amongst all of that happening, uh, spending a lot of time researching, uh, a lot of time in the archives, you know, dredging up stuff that, most like they'd never been looked at before which also kind of fascinated me that there was you know a a massive amount of information in the archives that no one had ever even looked at um and uh so that was you know another another part of the process was was making sure that you know whatever we presented in here uh was you know historically accurate and and backed up with evidence um seems pretty obvious from a museum but um uh, since we'd been here we'd heard a lot of tales i'll call them uh, you know about the the history here, and some of it just didn't gel with you know what I what I had researched and continued to research, and um, so you know there's a fair but of you know, almost myth busting going on with what we've done over the last couple of years uh, in the research that we've done, um, uh, because again no one had ever researched to that degree before, and everyone sort of just relied on you know tales that have been told over the last you know seventy or eighty years uh, as being evidence of what happened here. Um, right. and most of which we've sort of um, proven to not actually be historically accurate. So. 
Okay. Well, can you give us a potted history of what actually did happen? Uh, wh when was it established and, and what happened there? Um, yeah, so one of the things that interested me most was, um, so everything sort of focused on primarily uh, liberators and World War II. Um, and, uh, you know, as we sort of uncovered, there was there was far more than just liberators. Um, and I was really curious as a bit, as to the you know pre-war history here, um, yeah. you know re regional aviation in Australia was you know pretty um, uh, interesting and exciting throughout the nineteen twenties and thirties, as a lot of you know development expansion and um, exploration was going on, yeah. and, and and no one had ever talked about what happened here you know pre-war, and so. Um, uh, thanks to the wonder people people at Trove, um, who have digitised a heap of useful mm -hmm. content, um, you know we uncovered all of this, you know, amazing content uh, about um, aviation here at Tokemore, which actually dates back to 1921 um, when it became a, a regular um, aeroplane landing ground, as they called them back then. Okay. Um, uh, so yeah, there was all of this fascinating history throughout the 1920s and 30s. Uh, we had an airline service that was established here in 1930. Um, we had uh, what today we would call adventure flights, <clears throat> you know, happening in 1921 and 1922 very regularly. So you know, people who bought ex-military airplanes and uh, and were doing you know barnstorming and joy flights in them. Um, yeah. uh, and then um, yeah, airline services into the into the early 1930s, and and all of that was happening on. Uh, the property which ultimately became um, the airbase during World War Two, um, uh, and so in uh, January 1942, uh, as I guess our government and the Americans were sort of starting to realise that you know a Japanese invasion or at least you know a threat <coughs> uh, to our northern area was was pretty pretty likely. Um, they'd started setting about looking at you know where they needed to place defence infrastructure throughout Australia. Um, uh, to support, you know, primarily uh, what became, you know, American operations because, you know, the Royal Australian Air Force and Air Army at the time weren't, weren't that significant that it needed much in the way of facilities. Um, and the Americans who were obviously shipping a lot of people and personnel, uh, personnel and equipment and aircraft and all these other bits into Australia needed places to operate from. And so Tokemoa was selected um, as, a, as a location for what was titled a, uh, an aircraft maintenance and repair depot but um also just general stores um and and it was significant in terms of size uh, it was like nothing that had ever been built um uh, almost anywhere in the world at that stage in terms of scale so right. um <clears throat> uh, and it was designed to cater for um you know aircraft assembly so aircraft componentry that was being shipped into primarily melbourne and geelong um being you know put on trains and sent up to tokemall and uh, and erected and then flown off into the operational areas. Um, aircraft that were damaged in, in operational areas up north, um, coming south to, I guess, a safer environment to get, you know, repaired and maintained, um, plus just, yeah, general stores and training and, and other bits and pieces that went on. So the original design for the base was uh, was for personnel of about 5,500, um, primarily for the US Army Air Corps. Um, That's huge. That's a huge number of people. Yeah, massive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, you know, it was like six hundred and eight buildings was the original um, building plan. Wow. Um, four runways, taxiways, um, uh, water infrastructure, sewer infrastructure, stormwater, because all of the land around here was just you know grazing land primarily. Yeah. Um, so there was you know there was nothing really significant here. The town itself only had about four hundred people, so it was a pretty tiny town. Um, 
but uh, so yeah, there was this this plan drawn up, and the, the Americans designed it <clears throat> um, based on you know some of their learnings from Pearl Harbor about you know not congregating everything together in a small place, so you know having it quite a sparse layout um, uh, and some elements of some bases in America that they sort of used as part of designing it all. Um, but in the end, it ended up being uh, nearly six and a half thousand acres um, of land uh, which fell within the boundary. Um, which was basically six kilometres from north to south and five kilometres from east to west. So it was a, a very wow. significant area. Um, and they basically said to <clears throat> to War Cabinet at the time, or the Administrative Planning Committee, uh, this is what we want built, this is where we want it built, uh, get at it. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so the Australian government um, set about building this base for the Americans uh, here at Tokemore. Um, and just simply because of the size and scale of what was required here, um, uh, part of the establishment of the of the project here was uh, the creation of the Civil Construction Corps and the Allied Works Council, who would become sort of the government bodies um, who would undertake major defence projects within Australia um, during World War Two. And Tokemol's uh, air depot was the first major project that they worked on uh, and okay. were established for. Um, and so the Civil Construct- Construction Corps, which was um, basically conscripted Australian uh, labourers. Um, were put to work, you know, building things. Most of them weren't actual builders. Um, they were just, you know, guys who were too old for military service or not fit for medical service uh, were, mm. or not in critical roles uh, were just conscripted into this Labor Corps and initially nearly 3,000 were um, sent here to Tokemore, um to work on the project along with, you know, state government agencies for roads and railways and um, water and sewer infrastructure and all these other, and electricity. Um and local councils who had all of their equipment, um, you know, taken off them and all their personnel taken off them to come here and work on this project because um, the time frame was ambitious. The, the government had set, had this list of about 21 or 22 priority projects to work on at this stage, uh, and this was one of the major ones. And they were basically given six months to get all these projects done, um, which, um, you know, in today's terms would mean, you know, <clears throat> not achieving a great deal. Yeah. Um uh, but, you know, at that point in time with obviously the impetus to get stuff done um, and probably a significant lack of regulations, um, <laughs> they just they just went and built stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, there was a lot of, you know, um, byproducts of, of what happened as quickly as it did. Uh, mostly things weren't built very well, but they weren't designed to last forever. They were basically designed to last for a war that they thought would probably go on for three or four yeah. years. Yeah. Um, so as long as, you know, so engineering standards were reduced because of all of that and all the rest of it. But yeah, ultimately within six months, uh, they built this base. Um, That's pretty uh, impressive. And, oh, that it's is. unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the many things that we've discovered along the way while researching is um, both photographic and um, cinegraphic evidence of the construction here because the government was spending so much money on it that it had been allocated £2 million to build this project, which was extraordinary at the time. Um, uh, They wanted, you know, they wanted to, you know, kind of PR it, but not too much. Um, So uh, the Department of Information actually contracted photographers and videographers to come here and film and what was going on, um, which we then finally uncovered a couple of years ago, um, along with a massive amount of aerial survey imagery that was done at the time. Um, so from about April 1942 through to sort of the end of October 1942, we've got almost 
um, fortnightly or three weekly aerial survey imagery that was done in very high resolution and very well detailed, um, as well as you know ground-based photography and ground-based um, movies that were produced, um, including a documentary that was called the Tokomol Documentary, which is a film that runs for about six minutes, um, showing all of the construction activity here. Uh, wow, that's that's brilliant for your museum to be able to you know show people how it was built. Yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah, it's um. You know, because for me, it's like I'm a visual person. Um, so yeah. as much as I like reading stuff, I'd rather look at pictures and movies. Mm. Um, and as I've discovered, so do most punters who come through a museum. Yeah. Um, and so to be able to have um, yeah, imagery um, and, you know, videos that run in our cinema, um, that capture all of that without really having to say too much uh, is is very powerful. Particularly some of the imagery is very, very powerful in terms of the scale of what was going on and, and particularly how things were done back then, um, you know, with no, no things like health and safety regulations um, <laughs> yeah. or any of that sort of stuff or the fact that most things were done by hand because they didn't yeah. have the equipment that we have today. It was almost the equivalent of a, uh, of a rural barn building. Yeah, yeah basically, yeah. Um, and, you know, you look at some of the, the videos um, or, the, or the movie and all of the imagery of uh, of the large hangars getting built here, uh, and it was just, you know, um, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of blokes and block and tackles and ropes, um, you know, hoisting things. Um, you know, there was no cranes or any of this sort of stuff. Uh, and, then, you know, the hangars that they built here, you know, six of them um, w- were significant. You know, they were uh, 100 metres long, 40 metres wide, um, 10 metres to the bottom of the rafters, um, basically an, an acre on the cover, mm. um, all made of timber um, and all built by hand. Um, so and, no, uh, no metal str- scaffold or anything like that? No, no, nothing. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, looking at the, you know, the, I mean, the, the buildings today are still impressive. We've still got three of them that are standing, which is impressive. How, um, how many were there originally, Matt? Uh, so there were six of those that were built, and they were, um, there were, they were called a name different things. So some were listed as erection hangers, which were basically designed for the assembly or erection of aircraft. Um, yeah. So the idea was that aircraft would go into these big hangers, and, and they could fit. Um, well, when the raft took over um, later on, they ended up fitting four four B twenty fours in these things. So it gives an idea of how big wow. the hangers are. Oh, yeah. um, and you know, we've got you know some photographs of um, uh, US you know B seventeens in inside the hangers, making a B seventeen look very small. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, they're they're very significant. So yeah, six of them were built. Um, one of them burnt down in the end of forty four during a maintenance incident. Um, another one burnt down in the uh, late nineties, uh, they most mostly post-war stuff. They were used for storing. Um, well, after during the sixties and seventies and eighties, they were used for storing like hay and um, a lot of the you know crops that were grown around here. Um, hay has a pretty good thing to spontaneously combusting, um, yeah. which is not really good in a gigantic timber hanger. Um, <laughs> uh, so it, yeah, so one of them was lost to that, uh, and another one just simply failed, like structurally failed in the late sixties and fell down. Um, mm. Uh, and again, you know, the, the, the buildings were built, um, you know, almost as an experiment. Uh, the original design for those hangars was a, an American design for a steel structure. Um, and simply due to the lack of resources available at the time, uh, they couldn't use steel. They couldn't get sufficient steel to build them out of steel. So uh, the, some engineers as part of the um, Allied Works Council came up with a, an, you know, a revised model using timber. Um, and again, timber was a controlled, um, you know, building material at the time as well, uh, and there wasn't a lot of it. <clears throat> and so, um, 
a lot of the timber that ended up in the hangars was, um, you know, very recently felled timber out of Gippsland, um, basically milled to the sizes required, sent to Togemol and put in the buildings. So that wasn't seasoned or dried. Um, uh, and as a result, you know, not long after they were built, you know, coming into summer, um, they were all pretty wonky. Um, right, right. <laughs> uh, and uh, and they still are today, but the fact that three of them are still standing is testament to, um, you know, the the work done to build them in the first place. Yeah, how are they? How are they for asbestos? Because I know the, uh, the covered in it. Werribee, <laughs> yeah, because the hangar at Werribee, where the B twenty four restoration project goes on, uh, I mean that that hangar is dominated by the B twenty four, and that's huge. So to give yeah. you, that gives a real perspective on how big the ones at at Tokemall are. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so well, the, full of asbestos, and how, how are you going about you know preservation? Um, so uh, yes, I mean they were a the same design. Um, so the the hangar design had um, two different variants. So it was basically the the ninety six foot span, uh, which is the one that the B twenty four memorial is in. Um, so it was a, a lower roof line and obviously only ninety six foot wide. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the ones that were all built here, well, there was two different versions here. We had a couple of the ninety six. Uh, foot versions built um, that were up on the northwestern side of the base. Uh, they're both gone as well. Uh, and the others were the, the 130 foot span um, ones. And um, yeah, so they're, I mean, they're all still covered in asbestos because there's, you know, there's no real alternate to do, um, you know, to re roof these things, um, you know, in a cost effective manner. Um, uh, and the owners of those that are all privately owned now, um, you know, they, uh, two of them particularly are workplaces, so they undergo you know very regular atmospheric testing and other bits and pieces, and they've had you know work done to try and preserve you know the asbestos, like everyone who's got it, as much as possible. Um, so they are in as good a condition as you can expect from a, an eighty year old building that was designed to last five years. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That little detail. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So that's that bit's all fascinating, and and I think what was really interesting was you know I used to hear all these stories about you know there were seven thousand Americans here, and and from all of the evidence that I'd sort of been through in terms of you know um, you know aerial imagery and and other uh, documents that we came across, there was there was nothing that suggested there was ever that many people here. Um, right. Like it, it's hard to hide seven thousand people. Yeah. Um, and. Um, so as I sort of, I managed to come across some uh, some documentation um, that was the, the U.S. Army Air Corps or the U.S. Army's. Uh, they had what they called a, a station list and a disposition of personnel, um, and effectively it was like a weekly um, report on you know what units were located where in Australia and how many bodies were in each unit. Um, and so what was supposed to be a very significant base for the U.S. Army never actually became one. Um, at its peak, there was just under a thousand uh, U.S. personnel here, um, and you know the the war situation sort of contributed to that a fair bit. You know, all of this was built um, with the expectation that the Japanese would just keep you know marching on south. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, major battles like um, Coral Sea and Guadalcanal and stuff, which sort of stemmed all of that, um, and then. You know, after that, you know, Japanese sort of started to get pushed back further north. Uh, all of all of what was built here for Americans became too far away for them. Um, mm. And there's some, you know, famous quotes about um, General Kenny basically saying, you know, we're on a visit here, this is all very good, but move it 2,000 miles north because it's too far away from everything now. Yeah. Um, and so very rapidly after that, the Americans stopped sending stuff here uh, and started moving out. Uh, primarily up to Townsville, um, which is where the the units that were initially based here at Tokemol primarily ended all up at um, 
uh, Townsville. Some ended up in uh, at Eagle Farm, um, but the majority at Townsville. So um, by sort of, you know, the start of May, uh, American units sort of started moving in. Um, and then by the end of September, they pretty well all left. Um, and when there was some conferences that were held throughout October 42, which were really looking at, you know, what to do with this gigantic base that had been created and the money, money that's been spent on it. Um, uh, the Americans are like, well, we don't need it anymore, so we'll give it to the to the RAF. Um, and uh, at that stage, there was about 120 American guys who were still here as part of a communications training unit, uh, and they were gone not long after that uh, to the point when the, the RAF took it over in uh, early November 1942. There was basically nothing here. Um, they did a... Uh, as all good things did, they did a handover and takeover uh, of of what was a government owned facility being transferred to another one, and um, they, you know, uh, diligently documented everything that was in every building when the RAF took it over. And, and there's about 900 pages of inventory, um, and basically it was empty buildings. Uh, there was not much in the way of anything that the Americans had left behind, um, uh, other than some general stores in some of the storage areas. Um, but, you know, all of the hangars were empty, all the other buildings were empty, and um, and the Air Force, the you know, Royal Australian Air Force sort of wandered into this, you know, gigantic abandoned um, base, wondering what to do with it all, because the Air Force at that stage wasn't that big either. Um, mm-hmm. um, and so there was a lot of discussion throughout sort of November as to what to put here. Uh, and they just sort of started picking up units from around Australia as well as new units that were being developed uh, and then moving them here. Um, and ultimately, uh, by the middle of, you know, 45, um, there was nearly 5,500 Air Force personnel here, um, including, you know, over 500 uh, women of the WAF. Uh, this was the, both the largest uh, Air Force base um, from a, a RAF perspective and also the largest of all of the, the WAF bases um, that were operated. Um, okay. And in, initially, the units that were here from an Air Force perspective was um, number seven aircraft depots, so the you know maintenance, repair, overhaul of anything that the Air Force was operating at the time, uh, and they were a big unit in their own right. They were just over twenty one hundred personnel just in that one unit alone. Um, wow. The paratroop training unit, which had only just been established at um, Laberton, had moved up here, and they were the first Air Force flying operations that took place here. Um, Did you uh, say paratroop? Yeah. I didn't realise yep. the Aussies had them. Uh, yeah, they, apparently they didn't use them anywhere. <laughs> okay. um, but, uh, yeah, so the, the paratroop training unit uh, was established at Laverton in, in very early November uh, 42, and it was yeah one of the first units that was picked up and moved up here because um, uh, Laverton was obviously pretty busy with the air, uh, aircraft depot that was down there at the time. Yeah. And, um, uh, and this was seen as, you know, an opportunity to, you know, get some flying operations up here at Tokemol and, and make use of all the facilities that were here. And, uh, yeah, so they, they moved up here in middle of November uh, and started uh, what was very new concepts for the uh, for the Australian Army and the RAF because this had never been done before in Australia. Um, so there were lots of trials done um, on, you know, parachutes and gear, uh, on on dummies initially, um, the aircraft that they were using was a, a DC two, um, uh, as well as a couple of uh, De Havilland Dragons uh, that had been modified for, which is a horrible thought jumping out of a yeah. De Havilland Dragon. I wouldn't have thought it would have been big enough to get into with a parachute on, but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, not a big door. No, um, so there there was a couple of uh, a few uh, dragons that had been uh, modified for paratrooping. Um, and they also had a Wiraway that they used for filming a lot of the trials and stuff, um, uh, and a, 
Uh, well, they were supposed to get a Tiger Moth, but that was the first aircraft that crashed at Tiger Moth. Um, ah. it, had been, it had been flown up from uh, Lavit and, and then crashed on arrival um, uh, by running into power lines that just happened to run across uh, a major taxiway that ran between all of the hangars and the end of the runway up the northern end. Uh, and about a week a week later, a uh, Spitfire came to the exactly the same spot and hit exactly the same power lines and came to grief as well. Wow. Um, so it was a, a good start to all of that. Uh, thankfully, there was an aircraft depot there that could, you know, well, the Tiger Moth got flying again. The uh, Spitfire never did. Um, uh, in fact, that Tiger Moth still flying today. It's up in Sydney. Um, all right. Which is pretty cool. Uh, and the DC-2 that was here uh, is the one that's in the Moreban Aviation Museum. Um, oh yeah, collection. So, uh, right. that, that was the that was the first Air Force aircraft that was ever stationed here at Tokemol. Um, yeah, interesting huh. about the parachute. What well, the paratroop training unit wound up becoming the Army's parachute training school hmm. as they moved out eventually and wound up getting disbanded at the end of World War Two, but then reformed in the fifties. So it's 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 a yeah. We do actually have a, a para like we. The Air Force quite often flies a C-130 to Nowra and they get a whole lot of army guys and push them out the back. Yep. It used to be caribous. Um, but it, the other thing about Toke was the after the war, wasn't it used for um, dismantling and, and scrapping a whole lot of aircraft? Yeah, so um, Tokemore became the, the largest of, um, uh, so post-war, what were called um, the uh, care and maintenance units, which were basically places to go and store stuff um, as the uh, military demobbed, um, and just simply because of the amount of land that was here and the number of personnel who could, um, you know, keep aircraft somewhat serviceable in various states of serviceability, um, uh, yeah, Tokemol just sort of got sent stuff um, as the home of you know B twenty four training and and the and the um, all the maintenance operations were here. Uh, all of the well, the majority of all of the B twenty four squadrons uh, were sent here post-war um and all of their aircraft ended up just being stored here um but yeah between 1940 well sort of the end of 1945 uh through to the end of 1960 when the base closed in october um over a thousand aircraft had been sent here for storage and ultimately disposal um, most yeah. of which were most of which were scrapped um uh, some survived being scrapped uh, like the majority of our mustangs flying around in australia today um, were all saved from being scrapped here um uh, but yeah, there's 31 different types um, uh, within that thousand uh, aircraft uh, that had come to Tokemol for disposal, and it included not only aircraft from World War II, um, but um, aircraft from both the Malayan Emergency and Korean War. <coughs> uh, in fact, there was a whole bunch of Mustangs that were um, manufactured by CAC, flown to Laverton for acceptance, flown to Tokemol, put into storage. Um, some were then pulled out of storage in the uh, sort of 1949, 1950, uh, sent to Korea, um, did their thing in Korea, came back to Tokemol to get scrapped. Um, there were others that stayed in storage the entire time and basically got scrapped with their flying hours that were uh, uh, that were sent from going from you know Fishman's Bend to Laverton to up here and then never done with anything again. So wow, um, oh, yeah. yeah, there's some serious horror stories about what went on up here. So. Yeah. They're not yeah. still sitting in a hangar there, are they, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, no. There are there are no barn finds to be found. Um, but I mean, there's a lot of aircraft that are, you know, some very significant aircraft that are sort of floating around today uh, that are, uh, you know, remnants of of you know the operations here. Um, you know, the Moravian Museum's got quite a few airframes that were recovered mm. from here um, in the sort of 60s. Um, 
there are aircrafts that are flying around today that have been restored using parts that were found in, you know, in there was this uh, the notorious dam uh, or famous dam up here, which was sort of located near to where the scrappers were, where basically anything that wasn't able to be smelted was just chucked in this dam. Um, and so there's parts, you know, in aeroplanes in Australia that are flying um, uh, that that were found, you know, in paddocks around here or on farms around here. Um, there's a, a cool story that um, still seems unbelievable about the... Uh, what is now the 100 Squadron uh, Mustang um, on the uh, 90th anniversary pilgrimage um, between <coughs> Tokabal and Ballarat, lost an exhaust stub, uh, and at about the same time it was doing that trip, uh, Dave Jones, who was the uh, technical curator at the RAF Museum, um, was showing some of the other museum staff around the dam where they used to, you know, dig up bits and, you know, he just happened to be kicking around in the dirt and kicked up an exhaust stub. And... Um, <laughs> uh, uh, which has happened to be a Melbourne exhaust stub. And uh, BD, who was flying the, the Mustang at the time, rings up Jonesy and says, oh, you know, I've landed at, at Ballarat and we've you know, seemed to have lost an exhaust stub. And, and he, he he believed at the time that, you know, someone was pulling his leg because he's, you know, dug up this exhaust stub out of the ground up in Tokemore. <laughs> and um, uh, as it turns out, that exhaust stub uh, that was dug up by Jonesy's foot uh, was a serviceable item. Uh, it was taken to Ballarat, cleaned up, and put on the aircraft, and it's still on that aircraft today. Um, huh, yeah. and, uh, which is a, a really cool story. But at the time, none of us believed it. We thought it was just, you know, it was like someone having a laugh. But um, yeah, that's a, it's a it's a pretty cool story that we all sort of still still remember very vividly. But just for overseas listeners, what you guys in Australia call a dam is what we'd call a pond, isn't it? Um, yeah. So like a you know a, a a hole on a farm for collecting water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and crap. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. And surplus military junk. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> and surplus farm equipment and anything. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Or, you know, what most farmers use them for is, you know, digging great big holes and putting all of their rubbish in. Yeah. Um, right. And because, uh, you know, back in the old days, you couldn't see anything uh, from the ground. But, uh, you know, these days you can, you know, very clearly from either flying around or having a gander on Google Earth, um, how many uh, rubbish tips exist on farms around the countryside. Oh, mate, uh, just even flying a hot air balloon at a thousand feet yep. uh, out in uh, the countryside and going, wow, this guy's got a huge collection of scrapped cars in his backyard. Oh, there's mm-hmm. heaps around here still. It's yeah. um, like, and there are. Well, there are still farms around here that have got you know piles of aeroplane bits on them. Um, yeah. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, um, uh, you know, there's. Uh, in fact, the, the amount of stuff that was surplus uh, is fascinating around here. There's, you know, there's houses in town whose you know uh, fences are built using aeroplane bits. Um, okay. A very common thing to do back then was the. Um, uh, the mosquito undercarriage legs, uh, where the. Uh, rubber rebound things were <clears throat> uh, so those uh, those um, outer casings um, were very popular for welding end on end to make posts um, and there's three houses in town whose fence posts are made out of you know mosquito leg bits um, <laughs> wow. uh, there's an entire shed on the other side of town uh, that's made out of Wirraway airframes that were just cut up um, and they sort of made the structures of the, the side of the shed because um, uh, that's you know Back then, you think, you know, post-war, there was this massive shortage of, you know, building materials and anything else like that. Um, Yeah. And a lot of the, particularly steel or stainless steel or magnesium and stuff that couldn't be smelted, um, because pretty much all of the smelting guys wanted was aluminium. Anything that wasn't really aluminium um, was just sort of cast aside and, 
you know, farmers and anyone else who wanted it could just come and buy it for basically nothing. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, farm carts around here that I can identify that have got aircraft wheels on them. Um, uh, you know, pretty common for you know, to see farm carts with Mustang wheels or Wiraway wheels and that type of stuff on them. Are you, are you, as the museum curator, are you approaching these people and saying, hey, if you don't want that anymore, can we have it sort of thing? Uh, as you can imagine, it's it's a very delicate activity doing that sort of thing. So yeah. um, I know a lot of people in the past, because there have been, you know, scavengers up here for the last decades um, looking for bits and pieces um, and... Uh, so we've sort of avoided doing that, but what we wanted to do was, you know, build a facility that was seen as a permanent structure and sort of get respected and trusted in the community. Cause like when right. we moved here, we didn't know anybody. Um, like we were known to like a couple of people when we moved here. Yeah. And so, um, you know, as sort of blow-ins taken over the town's history, that was very delicate to sort of manage all of that. Um, True. And, and so we sort of thought, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll build this so that, you know, if people do have stuff that they might be willing to, you know, to loan or gift or whatever, um, at least they know there is a permanent facility and it, and it is, um, you know, that we are respectable people and we are trustworthy with history and all of those types of things. So um, since we've opened, yeah, we've had a lot of that um, where farmers will just come in with utes full of bits and pieces in the back of them and they uh, just unload them out the front and go, okay, you guys can have all of that. And I'm like, okay, thanks. Um, Where awesome. is that? Yeah, that's, that's some of it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with that, but thanks. Um, but at least they didn't throw it out. Um, yeah, and you know we've got some really good nuggets out of all that. You know we've got um, things that I generally can't identify, but you know I usually just take photos of and send to you know Matt Denning or Matt Grigg or other people that I know and go, can you tell me what this thing is? Um, and normally, you know, within a, a very short period of time, particularly if it's interesting, uh, I'll get a, a response. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, we've had bits of Liberator, bits of Wiraway, um, you know, bits of jet, uh, bits of meat, vampire jets, um, and other bits and pieces just sort of turn up and, and people don't, a lot of people don't really understand what it is that they've got. Um, one of my good mates in town here has got, um, uh, the, I'm not even sure it's kind of like a, an armor plating bit out of the front of a single seat vampire, which is, um, just in front of, just behind where the wheel well was in the nose. Yeah. And um, he's got one of those behind his, you know, stove in his um, shed <laughs> okay. um, because it's really good at protecting stuff behind it from heat. Yeah, um, funny that. And, uh, but he had no idea what it was. Um, and uh, I was sitting there one night, we're just having a beer and I'm looking at it going, sure, that's out of an aeroplane. He goes, you know, I figured it was just because of the shape of it. And he goes, I've never been able to figure out what it was though. And so I took a photo of it and sent it to a couple of people. And, you know, shortly afterwards, I got, oh, you know, here's a, here's a you know, breakdown diagram of the aeroplane and that's that bit there. And I'm like, cool, at least we know what it is now. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, it's still behind his, you know, behind his fireplace in his shed. Um, but it's, at least we know where it is and what it is. Um, yeah. So he's got a bit of a different appreciation now for, for the thing that's in his shed. Um and, and he'll he because now he knows what it is, you know he'll he'll make sure it's protected, preserved, and not get thrown out or anything else like that. So, right, yeah. Um, so so the um the airport itself uh, uh, now nowadays obviously there's the museum there and your activities, but is there is it much of a is it still a regional airport like it was in the thirties or what's happening? No, there? not at all. No, it's it's um uh. It's it's rather quiet. Uh, probably the major activity that's been going on over here over the years is um, uh, gliding, uh, mm-hmm. which has been sort of the major thing here since about 1970. Um, yeah, that's big. When yeah. a, a, yeah, yeah, it became uh, a 
you got Benalla down in Victoria, just north of Melbourne, and then Toke is the really big one in New South Wales. Yeah, and Toke, um, the gliding operations here uh, were established in oh, sort of late 1970 um, by uh, Bill Riley and Ingo Renner, um, who were travelling through Tokemol on their way to or from delivering a glider somewhere, um, and uh, you know had driven past the the big hangars here, thinking you know that'd be a good place to you know to do something with gliders because it's big. Um, and Bill had already started looking at importing gliders and other bits and pieces, and uh, they ended up creating uh, what became known as Sportavia, which was this big gliding hub. Um, Bill basically imported and uh, signed out just about every single glider that was imported into Australia throughout the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Okay. Um, and um, so it became kind of the uh, the, the home for, you know, gliders getting born in Australia. Um, but from a, a weather perspective, it was, you know, it's obviously very significant um, uh, gliding weather around here. You know, there's no airspace really to, to speak of. Um, you get really good thermal activity during the, the summer months. Uh, and they can do some some very, you know, impressive distances uh, in gliders. I think a couple of guys out of here last year did over a thousand kilometre trips, <coughs> yeah. um, which is, you know, astounding in a glider. Um but that's kind of always that's been a big thing here, and, and predominantly their focus has always been on uh, bringing international pilots into Australia, um, and so there's there's always been a big um, you know Japanese and and European um, uh, base of operators who come here you know during our summer and all stay here for four or six or eight weeks and, and just go gliding every day because they can uh, and they can go distances that they can't do at home and um, and, and operate you know almost nowhere else like you can so um so yeah so it's it's still a big gliding hub today um uh, sportavia as it was no longer exists uh, it sort of um uh, fell apart in the mid 2000s um but in the sort of 2015 2016 about the same time that we moved here um or bought here uh, that hangar uh was purchased um by a fellow uh, we all know as Lumpy Patterson. Uh, his real name's Mark, but if you call him Mark, he'll ignore you. Um, <laughs> but Lumpy bought the hangar, and, and he'd never had anything to do with Tokemall before, but obviously knew uh, of Bill and, and, and Ingo. Ingo was a you know world-renowned um, you know gliding champion. Um, mm-hmm. You know he'd won everything that you could win from a gliding perspective. You know dozens of times over. Um, and so yeah, Lumpy uh, bought the hangar and the land around it, um, uh, and sort of. You know, started getting it going again as a, as a as a gliding hub, um, and then COVID hit and that sort of killed all of that for a little while. But he sort of going, you know, got it going again. He's invested quite heavily in all of that. So yeah, gliding's a big big thing here. Uh, obviously, the air park where we live um, is a is a bit of a thing now too. We've got that 28, 30 properties in there. Uh, there's quite a few of us now who live on the airfield full time, um, which Great. is um, yeah, like I love it. It's um, you know, that was kind of one of the things that drew me here was, um, you know, was the, the opportunity to own freehold land, you know, on a very historic aerodrome um, that's generally pretty quiet. Like, you know, whenever I go flying, there's not usually anyone else out and about. Uh, so it's kind of like having this massive, you know, 1800 acre um, airfield all to yourself, um, <laughs> yeah. which is, which, you know, is you know, money, money almost can't buy that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's somewhat surreal. You know, last night I was out flying, flying around in the windshield and, you know, I was the only one flying. It was, you know, 20 minutes before sunset and it was just magic. Uh, and it's like that, you know, every night it's, yeah. um, it's just sort of surreal to have this environment to operate in. 
Brilliant. So what what aircraft have you got in the museum? Uh, so at the moment, it's a bit of a moving feast, um, depending on um, you know who's who's got their airplanes in here from time to time. So uh, as of today, um, there's a, a Dragon Rapide uh, that belongs to Maurice Rolf. Um, so it's uh, technically airworthy, um, but not currently uh, main, maintained. Um, yeah. uh, I've got Doug Hamilton's series. Uh, in here at the moment we've had that in here for a little while okay. um and you know there's a cool history one of the things i wanted to do with the museum as much as possible was have aircraft in here that a were at least airworthy um because uh, that's kind of a thing I'm, i like um uh, and also where we can have you know where possible have some relevance to to hear a token or either a specific airframe or a type um uh and you know the, the air force uh, operated dragons uh, and basically all of the dragon and repeat maintenance was done here at 7 AD during the war um, and uh, so yeah when when we sort of created all this Maurice's repeat was already here in, a, in another hangar and we sort of asked him nicely if we could you know borrow it and put it in the museum which he was very keen on um, he got some space back uh, he... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the, the hangar that it was in, which is also a maintenance hangar, um, you know, it's typically one of those things that was sort of just shoved in the background, um, collecting dust and, and other things. So, um, you know, it was nice to put it in here and clean it up and uh, and have it on display um, of, as an aircraft, you know, indicative of, you know, sort of 1930s flying, you know, they're a beautiful looking aeroplane. Um, yeah. Doug series, you know, the series were the development of the Wirraway. Um, the majority of the series aircraft that were produced were produced from Wirraway airframes or aircraft that had been, you know, purchased by CAC out of the paddocks here at Tokemol. So um, that lineage of, you know, the 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 parent of the the series, you know, came from Tokemol in a paddock up the north here. Um, you know, is a cool story as well. Um, my bird dog and my windjill are in here. Um, when, we, when we first sort of started getting our guys, like, well, I don't really need to tell a story about bird dogs other than I found a tenuous link that the uh, the uh, last oster that got flown into Tokemol, uh, which was by an army guy who then flew bird dogs in Vietnam. So, you know, there's oh. tenuous links there. Stretching, yeah, stretching <laughs> it a little bit. Yeah. Um, uh, and the wind yield, I was trying to find, it was like, I figured like the Air Force must have landed a wind yield here at some point during the 1950s. Uh, and as it turns out, um, when the Air Force got wind yields and they were operating them up at, um, at Year and Quinty, uh, they would regularly bring a dozen of them over here for, you know, a week long, you know, flying camp here just because operations were too busy at Year and Quinty. So uh, for nearly, nearly three years, um, every couple of weeks, there was, you know, a dozen wind yields here operating out of here, which is, um, uh, which is cool. So that's a less tenuous link. That's a, you know, uh, a good link for ours um uh, or as i say it's my museum i can do what i want in there um, <laughs> yeah. yeah play the card <laughs> that's the one uh what else we've got in there at the moment uh i've got um paul bennett's t28 uh that's here left over from the air show um uh i i've also got his avenger and we're away here at the moment as well not in the museum because i won't fit um <laughs> but uh they're in my hangar and we've just got them here temporarily um before we head over to jamestown next weekend for an air show um and i've also got a, another bird dog in here at the moment uh which was a, a sympathetic uh providing hangerage to someone who owns a bird dog and needed hangerage so um i'm not going to not going to turn down a, a bird dog owner who's looking for hangerage because there's not many of us and uh, we all like to look after each other yeah you never know when it could be your turn <laughs> exactly yeah um so that's what's in here at the moment um we do have uh 
and it does shuffle around very regularly depending on you know whose airplanes are in here or what's coming and going um that was one of the other things that i wanted to you know to have was kind of a moving feast of aircraft um uh, so that you know people who are returning visitors don't just come and see the same thing over and over and over again mm. um and so we do yeah kind of you know part of the philosophy of the museum um sort of coming from my background in the tech industry is you know change is constant <clears throat> um so you know generally people don't visit museums more than once um so what we wanted to drive was you know a reason to come back um and yeah. you know so changing content um and the beauty of not being you know a, a massive facility is that it's relatively easy to change content or put you know a new exhibit up or shuffle an airplane around here and there um and you know it's a little bit new again um and so that works quite well um we do have another uh asset that will be coming into the museum shortly um uh i'm not sure when this is going to i'm going to say i'm not sure when this is going to air but um uh most of the paperwork's already done but we are uh the air force are gifting us a mackie um uh and they've already transported it here and reassembled it and washed it for me so i assume that's pretty well going to happen um <laughs> I, I'm physically on the site it, <laughs> yeah that's what i figure it's like they're hardly going to pull it apart and take it away again um <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I am not allowed to post anything on facebook yet until we finally do the deed um but all of the draft paperwork has been done so uh and as i said they pulled it apart and shipped it here and put it back together again so it seems unlikely that they'll pull it apart again yeah. um indications so, are positive very much so. Um, so it, other than a not having an engine, uh, is a complete airframe. Um, nice. It was uh, one of two that were left at uh, Wagga uh, that we in, were in Air Force care. That was, so basically it was gifted back from BAE when they trans, transitioned from the Mackies onto the PC-9s for ground training. Um, and yeah, I just re received a phone call out of the blue one day from uh, Dave Gardner, who's uh, the Air Force Collections Manager. He used to be the director down at the RAF Museum and I've known for many, many years. Uh, and he's sort of sympathetic to our, uh, to what we're doing here in terms of, you know, promoting Air Force history. Um, and yeah, that aircraft will, uh, will go in the display hangar as a, as a gift from Air Force sort of in recognition of their, you know, their 18 year service history here. Um, uh, and, you know, as we sort of discovered, this was, uh, you know, this was the largest base that the Air Force has ever operated in its 102 year history. Um, mm um but you know by a long shot um you know the today's large bases like Ambly and Williamtown are still only about you know 60 percent of what uh Tokemore was at its peak during the war which is it's kind of scary because having been on the base at Ambly it's huge yeah correct yeah um and yeah it's you know of all of the stuff that we read and look at and see it's it's it is really surreal to think of all of that stuff happening in here uh, at Tokemold uh, during that period and and the scale of it was just enormous um, yeah hey just just out of interest for our american listeners or people who aren't quite up with some of the uh, aircraft that have been named we're away is very much like the harvard shares a common ancestor late 1930s 1940s trainer windshield was a successor designed and built in australia commonwealth aircraft corporation big round engine um that's a lovely aircraft in its own unique way but the series took the the away and converted it into an agricultural plane for um spreading fertilizer and such didn't it yeah it did and at the time it was like it was world leading um yeah. uh you know it it could carry uh you know a cubic meter or a ton um of uh 
in a topper, which you know, no other aircraft on the market at the time you know could compete with that. Um, uh, but it's you know the the history behind that is is you know very similar to you know a lot of things that happen in the aviation manufacturing industry, um, where a really good idea wasn't you know supported or just didn't have the um, the push to keep it going. Mm. Um, and ultimately, only twenty of them were ever built. Um, they're not the most attractive aeroplanes on the face of the earth, but most agricultural aeroplanes aren't. Um, yeah. uh, but you know, it's it's historically very significant, um, and we are very fortunate to have you know Doug's aircraft here. Um, there's very is, few of them left now, isn't there? Yeah, there's only three airframes left. Um, yeah. so one, one of them's in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and one's one's at the Morabin um, Air Museum, and they yep. uh, they ran the engine a few years ago. Yeah, um, so Doug's is um, technically airworthy. Um, again, it doesn't have a current maintenance release, but it did fly here. Um, yeah. And uh, as subtly as you do things, um, we're, we're trying to encourage Doug to um, to get its MR released again, so that we can. You know, some of us, like I'd love to have a fly, but I think it'd be really like curious to fly it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having spent a fair bit of time in the Wirral now, it'd be interesting to compare them um, mm, yeah. in terms of you know how they perform. Um, uh, but also just, you know, it's a it's a very rare piece of Australian aviation history. Um, uh, and, it, and it'd be, you know, be a real privilege to be able to fly something like that. So. For sure. Yeah. Uh, um, you were talking about uh, having ways of getting people to come back if they've visited once before. And, of course, one of those ways is your air show. Uh, tell us about that. Um, so the, uh, the air show... Uh, is air shows to us are obviously you know pretty common. Um, you know I've uh, been flying in displays since um, well, probably like twelve or thirteen years now, um, and uh, the thing that the thing that I love about air shows and I'm still very passionate about them is that um, they engage the average person. Um, yes. You know that you know that's you know there's not five and a half thousand aviation enthusiasts that come to an air show um, like our air show. It's it's five and a half thousand you know mums, dads, kids, grandma and grandpa um, who who are still enthralled and inspired and you know by aviation um, and and I love the fact that aviation can still can still do that. Um, you know that people still ooh and ah and and gasp at you know what goes on at an air show um, uh, because aviation in a lot of respects has become very sterile and boring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you go on an airline, that's exactly what they are, sterile and boring, which is what you want them to be. Um, but as a result, they're not very inspiring. Um, and so to a, a way to inspire, you know, the next generation of aviators, um, whether they're flyers or maintainers or engineers or whatever, um, is to expose them to something that, you know, they don't normally get to see or experience. Um, and, you know, an air show does that. Um, you know, back in the days when we were all kids, you know, we used to go to air shows and hang around airports and there was no fences, no security, and you could go and talk to people and you could go in cockpits and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, today, you know, the kids don't get to experience any of that sort of stuff unless they happen to know a pilot. Um, uh, and the thing I love about the air shows is, you know, kids get to experience that stuff, um, you know, close up. Um, you know, they get to <clears throat> to see the aircraft flying, which is another thing that I love is, you know, cool old airplanes sitting in a hangar is cool, uh, but getting them out and flying them and seeing what they look like when they're flying, how they perform, what they sound like, um, you know, that's, that's all of the um, sensory stuff that I love about it. Um, and so it's good to be able to, you know, to, to run the air show and deliver that. Um, so we've run three here now at Tokemol. Um, the first one we ran back in 2019, uh, which was uh, kind of a 
part of the planning for the for the museum was to for us to be known within the community. As I said, we were very new to town and no one really knew us that much. Uh, and I wanted to sort of be able to kind of make a statement to say, well, if we if we say we're going to do something, we're going to deliver it. Um, and you know, so we, you know, in a very short period of time, um, cobbled together an air show. Um, you know, it was very successful. I think we had about four and a half thousand people to the first one. Um, which is, you know, a big thing for a town of 2,000 people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it really good fly-on display. Um, you know, it was all the things that we want, which is, you know, fascinating for all the people who attended, um, dragged people from all over the place to visit, you know, to visit not only, the you know, the town, but, you know, give us some um, uh, kudos so that when we sort of started working on the museum project, um, we weren't just, you know, Matt and Kaz, these people from out of town is coming in and, and doing something. It was, oh, look, you know, they put on this major event. It is, it's the, the largest, you know, uh, you know, sort of family friendly event uh, in the entire Shire uh, and region. So, um, you know, it, it's sort of given us, um, you know, respect and connections and, uh, and, um, and the ability to be able to do things that we wouldn't have otherwise to been able to do, I don't think. Right. Well, that's awesome. Cool. And, and you, you said you've had three. Um, the most recent one was just a few weeks ago, wasn't it? Ah, yeah, weekend before last, yeah. So um, it was uh, held in typical spring Tokemore weather. It was 25 degrees, uh, clear blue skies, a light northerly, um, which is what I predicted six months earlier, <laughs> and, uh, which is ironically exactly the same weather that we had for the previous two shows. Um, right. And, uh, uh, you know, we had, we had a really good flying program. Um, it, it basically is just... You know, the flying side of things for me, for our show, you know, we try and make it as like a big social event for all of our mates who do air show flying. Um, you know, so it's, it's a pretty casual kind of laid back event, um, which, you know, we want to maintain it as that. You know, I don't have plans to get, you know, bigger and better and boomier and all these other bits and pieces. Um, yeah. You know, if we can continue to get five and a half thousand people and all of those who are, you know, participating, come and have a good time, like that's good enough. Um, yeah. You know, we don't need to be, you know, bigger and ben-hur or, or make things more complicated than they need to be um you know it does what we want to do which is to uh you know extend the museum out into the airfield and, and into the air um and sort of showcase as, as much of you know our aviation history and heritage as we can um you know in the skies over tokemore which which again just sort of you know continues that message to all the people who attend um you know ando who does all the commentary is is brilliant at sort of of helping tell that story um uh, which, you know, which, you know, the people who come, you know, a lot of what they comment on is, is that they go away not having, having had a good experience and, and, and it's a good spectacle, but they also will go away learning stuff. Um, so for people who might not come through the museum and read everything, um, you know, they can go out to the airfield and watch airplanes fly around all day and, and eat some nice food from a food truck and, and play in a simulator and, uh, but also, you know, get educated about our history without having to come in here and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic! It sounds like uh, everything's going well there, anyway, and I'm I'm really pleased. Uh, you know, anyone starting a new museum, it's always going to be an uphill battle, um, and you know, and a and a big task in the modern modern world. So I'm I'm really glad that uh, your museum sounds to be really really good, really successful. So yeah, well and it, yeah, and I think you know that the model is very different. So you know, we're not a a charity or a not-for-profit or a committee or anything else like that. Um, so uh, Kaz and I own this, you know, it's our private business. Um, yeah. It's our private investment that's put all of this together. Um, uh, you know, another element of the, 
the returning customer is, is obviously the cafe that we've got here as well. Um, yep. And that was a critical part of the, the business model um, to, you know, encourage repeat custom um, and make the whole venture viable was, you know, knowing that, you know, some days you just don't get anyone through the museum, but, um, uh, but, you know, my, my principles were, we're going to be open every day and we're going to be open 10 till four. Um, and because, you know, tourists come every day, um, Turk's a big tourist town. Um, yeah. it's on a, it's on a major tourist path. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not open, then people will just keep driving. Um, and so that was part of the big principle for us was, you know, the museum has to be open every day. Um, and a a way to, uh, support that was to have, you know, a commercially viable business, um, attached to it, um, or integrated within it, um, that would, you know, kind of stand alone in its own right, but also ensure the museum was open every day. You you, you said that it's a a tourist town. Um, I, I looked it up and, um, did see something about it being, uh, the Murray River region is uh, is that why people go there? Is it yeah? So the... yeah, for the river. Um, so the Murray River is obviously very iconic in Australia, um, yeah. and you know part of the uh, you know the development concepts with council originally were you know council would like every other council you know in a drought time, which is kind of when we sort of started all of this, were you know trying to diverse away away from farming and and that in terms of having you know employment opportunities and economic opportunities that weren't dependent on farming. Um, and tourism is obviously you know a, a key part of that. Um, and for me, you know being you know from an industry where differentiating is a big thing, you know it's all you know tech industry is all about differentiating yourself and, and being um, you know being the the wanted technology for me it was, you know, the council had been like, you know, pushing this, oh, you know, we're a river town. I was like, yeah, but there's like 300 river towns. Um, yeah. you know, every every town on the river can claim to be a river town. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, what what makes us different and special and unique? Um, and, you know, our aviation heritage here, um, and particularly wartime heritage here, is, is absolutely unique and significant. Um, you know, nowhere else in Australia had what happened here. Um, and so it, you know, it finally sort of dawned on everyone that, you know, uh, yes, we're a river town, um, but the thing that makes Tokemall special and unique and different is, you know, is our our aviation heritage um, and our and our wartime heritage. Um, but yeah, you know, we've got you know thirty six whole PGA golf course, um, which is on land that used to be part of the aerodrome. Um, the Murray River from here is about a kilometre away. Um, uh, you know, it's it's on the Newell Highway, which is, you know, one of the two major road systems north other than the, um, the Hume Highway. Um, so it's, yeah, it is a, a, a kind of a, a gateway, you know, for the Victorians heading north and people heading into Victoria. Um, you know, so for a town of, you know, just over 2,000 people, uh, it gets in the order of about 100,000 tourists a year. Um, oh, wow. Gosh. You know, oh, camping yeah. on the camping on the river is a huge thing. Um, mm-hmm. There's caravan parks around here that have got you know licenses for five thousand people, <clears throat> um, uh, and they're just mm-hmm. over the river. So um, yeah, so you know during long weekends like at the moment, you know we've got um, AFL Grand Final. So today's a public holiday for Victorians. Uh, Monday's a public holiday for New South Wales people. Um, so you know towns packed with campers this weekend and and holiday makers who you know ski on the river, boat on the river, fish on the river, camp by the river. Um, and so, you know, part of our philosophy was, you know, we, we didn't have to try and get people to Tokemo. Um, all we had to do was capture them while we're here for a little while. Um, and mm. uh, and that was that was sort of part of the, 
the methodology was going, well, yeah, we don't have to try and get 100,000 people to token all year. All we have to do is if there's 100,000 people coming, you know, grab 10 or 15% of them while they're here. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that sort of, you know, works that way um, where we've been able to achieve that, which is really good. So for listeners to this in, here in New Zealand or in the States or overseas, What's the easiest way to come and visit your museum? Um, do we fly into Sydney or? Uh, no, Melbourne actually. So we're oh. um, yeah, we're only a three-hour drive from Melbourne Airport. Um, uh, if you basically head out of Melbourne and go straight north, uh, you hit Tokemoor. Um, okay. And um, uh, yeah, and we do get a lot of international visitors. Um, a lot of people travel, um, you know, who, who are driving in in country areas or or travelling around northern Victoria. Um, uh, particularly, you know, post-COVID, we've had a lot more of that, um, which has been good. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, yeah, three-hour drive, um, you know, north of Melbourne. Um, uh, yeah, Sydney, you know, Sydney from here is about seven hours. So even though we're in New South Wales, we're closer to Victoria. It's uh, a big state. It's a very yeah. big state, yeah. Yeah, I kind of remember that from when we drove around it. <laughs> yeah, well, when, when Kit and I, in the before times, would take a balloon up to uh, to Leeton to fly up near Narandra, um, Toke was where we would stop for lunch um, or breakfast as it was because we'd leave at stupid o'clock in the morning. And, uh, yeah, now that we know that the uh, cafe is open, if we're doing it again, definitely drop by the cafe. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's becoming a – the cafe has become an attraction in its own right, um, yeah. which we didn't really expect. Um, but, you know, it, it does make um, – you know, doing what we do here, uh, you know, much more viable. Um, interesting to note that uh, Tamora are now uh, integrating a cafe into their museum. Uh, mm-hmm. So has the museum at Scone. Um, and sometime in the future, the Air Force will catch on that maybe you want to feed people when they're at Point Cook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's getting into Point Cook that's some of the fun. I think it's because I've got a defence ID that they picked me for uh, for vehicle inspections. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the challenges with, you know, with, uh, with operating at Point Cook, and it has been since, you know, um, back in September to there's one um yep. uh but you know it, it's 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 even more difficult now than it used to be to get in with having to you know book early and all that other stuff but um yeah we don't have any of those challenges thankfully uh, people can just drive in and, and come and visit or better yet fly in or fly in we get a lot of people flying in um mm-hmm. again that's one of been the other attractions for uh for the cafes just people flying in for a coffee or lunch um yeah. you know we're only for most light aircraft, about an hour from Melbourne, uh, from around the Melbourne basin, um, and so we get yeah, lots of people who fly up on a on a nice day just to come up and have lunch and then fly home again. Uh, good ex- good excuse to go for a fly is to is to go and have something to eat. So. Yeah. Yep. Have you got another uh, air show planned for next year? Or uh, no? So the, no, the original plan was always to do them uh, biennially. So um, mm-hmm. two years is kind of. Uh, often enough, um, it gives you enough time to forget how much hard work they are. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, it's like having kids. Uh, yeah, I, we, I was having the exact same conversation with someone this morning. It's, uh, I mean, we don't have kids, but it, it seems like as much hard work. Um, uh, and the risk reward is probably about the same, I imagine. Um, but uh, yeah, it's and the other thing is, um, it, obviously, the Australian air show calendar is is you know tightly confined into you know, two couple of month periods at the start of the end of the year uh, and there's already a lot of established air, air shows um, that are trying to get back to normal scheduling after mm. all of the COVID kerfuffle um, and, and and from a display pilot's perspective there's only so many of us uh, and there's only so many weekend passes you can get so um, you know trying to run all of these shows every year would be impossible you just wouldn't be able to get the people to do it so yeah. um, you know so most of the shows here are, are 
you know, biennially just simply because of the, you know, the resourcing to do it. Um, and you just couldn't do them every year because there just wouldn't be enough pilots or aircraft to do them. So. Right, right. Yeah, oh, well, thank you very much, Matt. It's been fascinating to uh, chat about all your activities. Oh, my pleasure. It's, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's good to chat with you guys and, um, uh, you know, I get to catch up with Grant reasonably regular air shows here and there, which is nice. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a while since we've we've caught up in person, Dave, but I'm sure that'll happen again one day soon. Yeah, yeah. I think last time was at Omaka, wasn't it? We I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, that's another air show I want to get back to. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you should. Uh, are you uh, coming over for any others that are coming up, like Wairapa or anything like that? Oh, no, it's um, <laughs> the challenge of running a business seven days a week because yeah. it's very hard <laughs> for me to get a leaf pass. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, and that's kind of part of the, the challenge now is, uh, is yeah, when I want to go somewhere, it means that um, uh, other people here have to cover my bum. So, uh, yeah. um, you know, and unfortunately, we've got a, a really good team of, you know, staff here uh, who who make that work. Um, so, yeah, so, so for like next weekend when I'm away in Jamestown, um, you know, there's people here who can cover me and do my job while I'm not here, uh, which is really yeah. nice. But, yeah, it's something I haven't had to really consider before because, you know, my previous role, I was uh, I was very flexible in where I could work, um, whereas now I'm not so flexible with where I work. I just keep telling Kaz that any time I go to an air show, it's marketing and promotion for our museum. Um, and uh, that doesn't really get carried away that much. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep saying it though. One day it'll work. Yeah, (laughs) probably not. (laughs) Cool. Well, thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. We'll uh, we'll chat soon. Cool. Thanks, Matt. Reminding you that radio engines don't leak oil, they just mark their territory. This is Warbird Radio. Tune in. Take off.